What's up, everybody? This is Cortland from NDHackers.com, and you're listening to the ND Hackers podcast. On this show, I talk to the founders of profitable internet businesses, and I try to get a sense of what it's like to be in their shoes. How do they get to where they are today? How do they make decisions at their companies and in their personal lives? And what exactly makes their businesses tick? And the goal here is always so that the rest of us can learn from their experiences and go on to build our own successful internet businesses. Today, I have with me the impressively multi-talented Danielle Baskin. Danielle is an artist, a designer, an engineer, and an entrepreneur. She has built products for pretty much everybody, including NASA, Nickelodeon, Amazon AWS, Mozilla, Salesforce, etc. Danielle, I'm excited to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you for having me. So that was part one of my introduction. (laughs) You're a hard person to introduce, so I have two parts. Okay. The second part of the introduction is that you are the creator of a voice chat app called Dial-Up. Yes. You are the founder of a conference swag company called Branded Fruit. You're the founder of a company called Peddler Pop-Ups. You are the creator of Inkwell Helmets, etc., and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. And what's fascinating about this is you are running these companies all at the same time. Like these are not, this is not a succession of companies. <laughs> You're simultaneously running all of these companies. Parallel entrepreneur. A parallel entrepreneur. That's what you are. <laughs> How many did I leave out? I think I named five. I have a lot of small businesses, so I have like 23 distinct products that I sell on the internet. 23. Yes. And how long have you been creating these? I've been creating businesses, I guess, since 2008. Wow. Yeah. 23 businesses. Uh, Yeah, I mean, it's slow. I mean, like for what, 2008 to 2011, it was just one. And then... I mean, I've been creating businesses since since 2008 too, and I'm nowhere near 23 active businesses right now. I mean, some are just single products and they're not like entire business or a a service, but um, some are, some are businesses and I have like nine employees for, for branded fruit and yeah. Okay. Walk me through the mindset of of somebody who chooses to to live their life this way. Why (laughs) run this many products simultaneously? I mean, it is, it is problematic. I have a lot of ideas and I like am very restless unless I execute upon them. Like I just need to create them. And it's very easy to put a product on the internet, like create a landing page, take photos of something, just put an idea out there. It's very easy. And I think most of my ideas were kind of accidental. Like I just threw it on the internet to see what would happen. And then people want that thing. And so it's a surprise, but I haven't had to shut any down. So what I do right now is a sort of toggle businesses on and off. Or I work on what's most exciting to me at that time. So you've never had a job. You never actually worked a full-time <laughs> job for somebody else. Uh, I've had weird jobs. Yeah, okay. I was I was a philosopher's assistant for five years, but that was like twice a week. And then I also was a scenic painter for an opera house. Those were my job jobs and a set designer. But I always, throughout that period of my life, I also worked on my own businesses. So no, I've never had like a nine-to-five job. And right now, are you full-time on, on your own businesses? Do they fully support you? Yes. What is it that drives you to create all these things and be an entrepreneur and work for yourself? Why not go get a full-time job with all the skills that you have? I'm sure you can make a lot of money <laughs> What's somewhere. What's really weird, like every time I've done, I've done contract jobs before, and then when I have that job, I think of a product that I can sell to the company. It's weird. Like I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm like deeply entrepreneurial. <laughs> I'm trying to look for things that, people are searching for and then i feel like i'm the only one will that'll create this solution for this yeah there's certainly a lot of things you've created that i don't think anyone else would 
Well, I accidentally created a tricycle rental service in New York when there was no way to just rent a cargo tricycle. So I ended up finding, and then the goal was to like have it be just a uh, tricycle for me to sell my own helmets. But I realized like, oh, actually no one's doing tricycle rental. I could sell this to other people. And then people were actually looking for that thing and strangers on the internet contacted me. I love yeah. how in your mind a gap in the market <laughs> is that nobody is doing tricycle rentals. Is that a real problem? Should people be doing tricycle rentals? Yeah, but there's a lot of... So yeah, I started Peddler Pop-Ups kind of because they're, there's a lot of pop-up shops in New York, but super expensive to like rent out of space. And all these shops were reaching out to me to to bring my helmets there. And I thought, well, what if I, you know, I could just kind of ride, put my helmets in the bike lane where most of the cyclists are. I was actually walking around with a cart selling helmets in the street when city bike launched. And my neighbor was like, Hey, I have this like old cargo trike that's locked up in my basement. Do you want it? And I bought it from him. And then, yeah, you're just like, sure. Yeah. So I often tell founders that one of the best ways to come up with ideas is to just start something and in the course of running that thing you will come up totally. with more ideas. Totally. It seems like that's what happened with your your helmets leading to this tricycle business. Yeah. So maybe the best place to start is at the very beginning of your story. Is your helmets business sort of the first of your your many projects turned into businesses? Yeah, I mean that was the first that was the first business that like within a few days of creating hand painted helmets, I immediately like set up a website and tried to sell them. Mostly because people on the street asked me where I got that thing. So and take me so, back to like the origin of that. This is oh, 2008. I, I think yeah. you were in college. It was like 2007 when I painted my first helmet. Yeah. Why did you paint a helmet? Uh, I didn't wear a helmet because I thought it was really dorky to wear a helmet. And I just hated all the helmet options. And then I forced myself to. There weren't Actually, there weren't bike lanes. In 2007, they were just putting in bike lanes. And my commute was on a like on Bowery. It was a crowded street with lots of traffic. And I had some close calls with some cars where I'm like, okay, I should really wear a helmet. New York City? Yeah, in New York City. And I bought one and I didn't like the way it looked. So I thought it'd be funny to camouflage it in a way. So I painted it to look like the sky, even though it's not really camouflage. I just painted it to look like clouds and just like a blue sky with clouds. And I varnished it and the varnish had this illusion of the sun. And then I thought, oh, I need a nighttime sky and a sunset sky. So I have like my helmets for different times of day. And this was just like a weird, a weird project I had, but it wasn't like supposed to be a business. And then once I painted three, I thought like, oh, I kind of want like 10 helmets. Like I, there's so many designs I could do. But almost immediately when I went outside in the street, just at an intersection, cyclists would ask me, oh, that's a really cool helmet. And I, my immediate response was, do you want one too? And I would like give them my email address. And then eventually I set up like a very basic website with pictures and a PayPal link. This was kind of, I mean, there weren't so many e-commerce options then, so... Yeah. I know a lot of people who I would call makers, tinkerers, people who love to do things like paint helmets and build things. Yeah. Not very many of them are entrepreneurial. Not very many of them, when somebody asked, oh, where did you get that, would, would say, hey, let me make you one of these. Yeah. Where did that drive come from? Huh. I mean, it is a it is problematic that I'm what, that when someone asks, like, oh, I want that too. I'm like, I can do that. I don't know. I mean, also, like, I it, it's as a 19 year old being able to sell artwork for, I was charging when I first started, I was charging like 50 or $60 a helmet. This seemed like so much money to me and like would be a great income. If you're able to make something and you find it fun and you're doing it anyway, and someone wants a thing from you and you simultaneously have to pay rent, it's natural to just be an entrepreneur, I think. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. (laughs) So people are asking you on the street, Hey, can I get these helmets? You are saying yes. 
I said yes. And then I think like within, I, I created a very basic website so I could direct people to a website. It was coolhelmets.org. That was my first website name. It was kind of a joke website, but there were images. I made 12 helmets for myself and for some people in my college dorm. And then I had like a little gallery. I think like my first helmets for like people on my floor, I, they gave me like beer in exchange for a helmet. Oh wow! But then I had a portfolio. A trade. Yeah. And then what the, the, I think what was really exciting is once I once I put this online, I reached out to local bike blogs and they blogged about it and strangers in other cities wanted the helmets for me. And this was fascinating, like be, to be able to sell something I made to someone that doesn't know me or like didn't run into me. was just so cool. Like someone in Florida is like, I want flamingos on my helmet. And I just was so excited about strangers contacting me at that time. Yeah. So at this point, are you thinking, you know, you've got dollar signs in your eyes, you're going to grow this into some sort of massive yeah. helmet business? Why not? I think I was excited about the possibilities of designs on helmets more than I was motivated by money. I was like, wow, there's thousands of designs I could make. I didn't think so much about like how that would equate to revenue immediately, but I was just thinking like, wow, I want this idea to exist. No one's doing custom helmets. Cycling is getting more popular. This needs to exist. So I have a notebook where I just give myself deadlines and random challenges and i wrote like you need to you need to paint 100 helmets in the next year like not necessarily to sell them they just need to exist in the world but yeah i mean simultaneously i also like wasn't making that much money on the helmets because my pricing was awful so how much did they cost i was doing like custom price like people if people were like i can't afford it i'd be like no problem what can you pay and i was just like so excited to sell my artwork and i think this is a problem for for lots of painters is that they don't actually keep track of how much time they're spending painting and they just think like oh well this is a meditative thing for me and like whatever you want to pay i'm just glad my artwork's out there so i was charging i don't know sometimes a ballpark around 50 dollars for a helmet when the helmet itself was costing me 20 and i was uh, making like 30 dollars on a painting that would sometimes take like five hours or um not a great yeah. deal right plus like not charging enough for shipping or like offering to deliver it in person because I wanted to meet the people buying the things. And what I learned, I'm like, you know, after two years, how to increase my pricing. I mean, I'm still learning about that. Yeah, it's not <laughs> it's an art, not a science. Yeah. Okay, so your first foray into business, yeah. you don't charge enough. How does the helmet thing end and how does the next thing begin? My next thing after the helmets was other bike-related stuff. I created this system to mount a phone to city bike when bike share first emerged. Like there wasn't a way to use GPS while on, on the bike. So I created, like I need, I needed to come up with some company name and I landed on Trillo box. Cause it sounded like, I don't know. It just sounded like an established. Yeah. I'd buy one of those. Case Trillo company. box. A Trillo box. Like I use a Trillo box. And that was, I think that was like my second company where I was able to like sell things immediately to strangers on the internet. Um, and I was sewing these leather cases. They were like, or they were like fake leather and, um, had, had like bungee cord. And, um, I was leaving notes on city bikes to like purchase one and people contacted me, but also people were searching for that thing anyway, which was really interesting. Like I could, see that a lot of my web traffic was just for people looking for like smartphone on city bike 
And so people Googling. And people were looking for a way to attach their phone to the city bike because the handlebars were, oh, I guess I'll explain this. The handlebars for the bike shares, the bike share bikes then were wide and all phone mounts were cylindrical. So there's no way to attach all the existing phone uh. mounts. So it had to be a system with like this bungee cord that wraps around and this product didn't exist. And I, I thought it'd be useful because like no one knows where the dock, you don't know if the dock is available. So you need to be looking at your phone and there'd be all these people riding city bikes, like stopped in the intersection, just like messing up. How did you like, notice this problem yourself? Was it like you wanted to attach your case to a bike and you couldn't? Yeah. Like I wanted to see a lot of the docks were totally full. So you would bike to what you thought was, you would, I'd want to see availability in real time. Right. While you're um, otherwise I'd end up at a dock and then I'd have to like pull out my phone and go to another dock and people would like honk at me cause I'm like stuck in the bike lane. Like why can't I just look at my phone while I'm on the bike? It doesn't make sense that I can't attach a phone to this bike. And I could like Velcro it, but like I could also design a case for other people. Yeah. Probably the oldest startup advice in the book is solve your own problems. Yes. You seem to consistently solve your own problems. Yeah. Everybody's got problems. Why isn't everybody else as good at you as you are at actually solving them? At solving them or or solving them for other or like getting other people to buy your solution or <laughs> well both because I, I when, uh, you, when, yeah. you, when you run into this it's like number one you're like this is a problem and you recognize that it has some yeah. value then you solve it then you get yeah. other people to use it huh it's probably like i worked for many years in theater and film making props and i had a ton of budget restraints and things I needed to like procure and produce within 24 hours and so I got into this habit of making things really fast as though there was a deadline when there wasn't and making things out of whatever was around me with like sp- spending as little as possible just because I worked on so many low budget short films <laughs> it's probably from that but I also I'm excited I get very excited about like figuring out how to make something how would you, let's say, make Trillo Box from from conception oh, to yeah. construction? What did I, like, how did I buy the materials? And yeah, stuff? exactly. How does that work? Uh, the first thing I did was I made a prototype of whatever I had. I think I put a nail in some wood and a rubber band, and then moved it around the city, and then like another nail, and then sealed my phone in with like a piece of clear plastic which i had lying around like okay well this is way too big i need to make this out of some material so i went to a fabric store and saw this like nice like fake leather stuff and got like a small amount of that and i also needed like nice hemming i had a sewing machine anyway so but i didn't spend much on it and then i decided to sell them for 24.99 because that was like a comparable price to the other to the other ones but i ended up manufacturing them in bangladesh (laughs) later on (laughs) And what about the selling part of this? You yeah. said you were going from city bike to city bike. I was leaving. Yeah, I was going to crowded. I was going to crowded docks and I had printed a card that said, you can attach your phone to your bike. Go to chillabox.com. And I would leave them taped to the bike itself, which is like kind of spammy. A little bit. Real world spam. Yeah. But like it's solving a useful problem. It wasn't like come check out my comedy club check out my band donate to my GoFundMe. <laughs> okay so you are this combination of this intense hacker slash hustler slash parallelpreneur mm-hmm. is that what you called it sure how did the trillo box thing work out uh yeah i actually got pretty overwhelmed with orders and i was trying to figure out how to manufacture them and i um someone in i was in a co-working space and someone in my co-working space 
his cousin in Bangladesh had a small shoe factory and he was visiting and he's like, what, what if I brought a sample and like we can test out making them? So I did a run of them in Bangladesh and then for the next year just like sold that. But I never, re- I never remade them because I got busy with other stuff. I had like my cloud storage sculpture company. One business interrupted bunch. by yes, another business. That's yeah. <laughs> so a lot of people have this issue where we start building something and we never actually finish building things. Mm-hmm. You're like a whole step further than that. Where you start building something, you finish building it, but then you don't take it to like scale. Yeah. You get interrupted at that phase. Yeah, I'm trying to I think the solution is to delegate, to fire yourself from your own company and then delegate all those tasks to something else, which is something I've learned in the last two years. Like when you reach a point where you kind of understand how to run the business and you're really excited about working on your next idea and just the day-to-day of your previous business is like, doesn't seem like it's dependent on your mind specifically. And you find someone really excited about that idea. Like you could hire someone if you have the revenue for it. And it's scary if you're used to doing projects all by yourself to like uh, give up that much control, but you've already figured it out and someone else might join and work on it and have their own ideas of how to do things better than you. And it's like a good experiment to try and that would enable you to work on something else. Let's talk about some of these lessons that you've learned. Delegating, yeah. something you've learned recently in the last couple of years. I'm curious what are some of the lessons that you've learned from your first few businesses? We talked about not charging enough. What else? Okay. Here's like a very simple thing. Like make sure your forms work on your website. I've launched a few things and I didn't like check to see if like all the different forms or ways you can contact me on every single page is working. And I actually like missed out on 200 emails for my oh, helmet no. company from when I, when I launched like helmets for your corporation, like I will do a batch of a hundred helmets. I missed out on like really great opportunities because I didn't check to see whether or not the JavaScript thing was like working. And so, yeah, very small details. I think something that is super important is to always launch your idea with a soup, with an MVP that doesn't, where you're not spending much money or time at all just to see what people want and showing your idea to just people, you know, before launching it and gauging reactions from that has been super helpful for choosing what to actually pursue. Because I once started, I wanted to start this like huge platform for sourcing props throughout New York for art directors and spent like weeks working on this, but I never even went up to a prop shop and asked if they'd be interested in putting their inventory on this website. And like, what a waste of time. I also like, Ended up asking art directors or like set designers, would you pay if you could like use this platform to search for like a 1920s telephone? And they're like, I don't know, like Craigslist is fine. And I like go to prop shops and it's okay. And I couldn't find, and maybe that changes depending on like what's going on that year. But like, I, it's really important because I could have done other things with my time. It's important to immediately start asking like, who your end user is or like who your customer is, like if they would actually buy that thing or you put any time and money into building it. So you've been creating and selling physical goods in the real world Mm -hmm. for a long time. You've also got some digital businesses, apps and websites and stuff like that. We're going to get into those. But I'm curious about how the process of selling physical goods has changed over time. Is that gotten any easier since you first started back in 2000? Oh, totally. I mean, it's fairly easy to set up an e-commerce website right now and to make it look beautiful. There's so many websites and templates and like it's easy to have good photography. When I was starting out with my business in 2008, I had to like buy a digital camera 
And then I had to like adjust, like I had to like sharpen it and I had to like make it look like a professional camera. And it's like just kind of easy to like seem like a large business online as an, as an e-commerce company. It's also, you can sell things directly through Instagram and other sorts of channels. Like things could just go viral on Instagram. And as long as there's like a checkout link, you don't need an elaborate website. You do like single page websites with checkout links. Do you know a lot of other people who you could describe as... I guess using the same terms you describe yourself as a parallel entrepreneur making these physical products and like competing with you. Like who are the other Danielle Baskin? I don't, I would love to meet, if you're listening to this, I would love to meet people that are working on multiple businesses simultaneously because I, and people always tell me not to do this. Like all the advice I get is to like focus on one thing. But, um, I, I know people working on lots of projects, but not multiple projects involving customers. Yeah. Yeah. I do too. I know a lot of people it's, making stuff. They're just not like, they're usually not that passionate. It's like if you're a singer, most singers aren't that passionate about also marketing their music and distributing it to customers and selling it to them. Yeah. Same with people that I know who are sort of physical makers. Like most of you guys aren't actually selling stuff. Yeah, it is. I, I try to encourage people to sell stuff, but I think it's, I mean, some people, my friends who are artists and make a lot of stuff, I often tell them to sell things. And they're like, no, like capitalism sucks. It'll ruin it. And it's like not really, I guess that's an ideology that, I mean, you still, they're still participating in a capitalist world. Yeah. <laughs> and no it's escape. not awful to charge. It's like great to charge people for services and things. I mean, it'd be cool if you could just like pay people all the time for weird performances. Like if someone says a beautiful sentence. Like you could just tip them. Micropayment. Here you go. Yeah, Here you go, Daniel. It's a dollar. That sentence is amazing. <laughs> yeah, I think, well, I think often people, yeah, people get uncomfortable with charging, with charging for something that they thought was a fun problem to solve. Yeah. Especially engineers that are used to getting paid to have a full-time job. And so their side projects, they always consider side projects. They never consider that to be like a source of revenue. Like with me, I haven't had a full-time job. So I'm like, what can I sell today? I wake up and look around me. What objects do I have? What can I sell today? And I think that if you're in a certain profession where there's tons of jobs available, there aren't tons of jobs available for like painters and sculptors. So you have to be like, what limited resources do I have and how can I convert that into money so I can pay rent? Right. Yeah. It's cool looking at the, I guess like the aesthetic differences between different types of people and makers. I was just at MicroConf a couple weeks ago and everybody at MicroConf is kind of like an indie hacker. They're mm-hmm. usually developers who want to make some sort of software as a service business and sell that. You're like a physical tinkerer and maker. You've got like, you know, this drive to look around your house and sell things. Yeah. I think people in LA, I was talking to my buddy Julian, like they're really into e-commerce in LA. Like mm-hmm. almost all the big startups coming out of LA are e-commerce focused. I go to a conference in Boise, Idaho every year called Craft Plus Commerce. And everybody there is a blogger. Yeah. They all have like blogs about Amazon shopping addictions and food blogs, et cetera. And they're all different ways to sort of make money online. Yeah. But like people don't really cross over. And then people sort of like, I don't want to say look down on the other groups, but there's kind of these invisible boundaries. People are like, well, that's not the real way to do it. So that's why I'm curious, like how you see yourself fitting into any of these groups. Are you just sort of like a free floating one person (laughs) entity? Like, do you look up to anybody? Are you inspired by anybody? Are you... Is there anyone that you're trying to be? Or is there anything no, that you're trying to do I that someone else has done? I have a list of things I want to create. I guess I'm I'm very driven by ideas, not not thinking about myself as a person that like has I'm just excited about ideas existing, so I'm not think like I need to be a person with all these businesses. 
Right. I more it's more like I want this thing to exist. Oh, I guess it's a business. Sometimes it's not. A project I'm really excited about. And this is not I don't just do e-commerce stuff, but like I'm I um do a lot of exploration of abandoned buildings. Um I'm very interested in just exploring spaces. So I uh have uh with lots of planning have gone to interesting places that it's difficult for the public to go to. And so I started this service called last chance tours where I actually like borrowed a Matterport camera. And so I could create uh, VR scans of places so people could access these abandoned spaces and get a tour of it. And I've been pitching this to cities to like have me do historical documentation, but no one like really will pay me to do it, but I'm just really excited <laughs> about this thing to exist. But sort of like, I don't know, I think I have, I have lots of hobbies and interests and I, then I try to think like, okay, how do I turn this into some sort of product that will like support this hobby? <laughs> do you think that the business side of things ever sucks the joy out of any of your hobbies or projects? Oh yeah, totally. I used to love painting and after painting, I mean, I've painted, I don't know, 5,000 helmets, like a crazy, I don't, I don't know exactly how many helmets I've painted. Lots of hours painting. I mean, I've painted for like over 10,000 hours or something. I, after four years, I hated painting it or like I had a complicated relationship with it. It was no long, it was like work. It's like, I was thinking like, as I'm painting, it's just like my mundane office job is painting and I would not look forward to it, but I forced myself to do it. And I liked coming up with new images. I was excited about the whole project in a conceptual way. Like the possibilities are endless for helmets. When I stopped enjoying painting, I started researching ways to automate it, which I'm still working on and I'm like partway there. Um, but then it sort of like I stopped drawing and I stopped sketching drawing and like kind of like lost my whole like visual art uh, drive. So then a year ago I stopped painting helmets entirely and then it sort of has come back right now. I have an impulse to paint again. So I think you could totally get burnt out once you start getting paid for what you think what what your creative hobby is. When you start getting paid, you associate that with money. It's not fun anymore and it's good to like quit it and then come back to it. Yeah, I guess that's the good part of never really yeah. fully shutting down your business. You can always come back to it. Sure. It's always there. Yeah. You said that you are more passionate about ideas themselves than any particular outcome. You're not like, I need to be yeah. Daniel Baskin, owner of yes. 50 companies. Yeah. It's just... Like, I don't like... I, yeah, I don't need to be... I need to don't need to be the CEO of a startup, even though I am. Maybe that is... Maybe that, that explains why your ideas sort of interrupt each other. Right? If you don't have yeah. a particular outcome you're going for and you get a new idea sure. you're excited to build, then why not switch and start working on this other idea? Totally. And I mean, that could be a problem. <laughs> Uh, because I think if I were to stick with one thing, if I was like, I want to run with branded fruit and I want to like not only do branded fruit, but figure out a new system for blue codes. And I want to like be Danielle Baskin of the produce industry. I could do a lot with that, but like, I'm not, <laughs> I'm conflicted because I have all these other identities, I guess. Yeah. I mean, you're pretty close to Daniel Baskin of the fruit industry. Yeah. You came in here, I don't know, what did you say? You're having a fruit day? Uh, yeah, I said today was a fruit day. So that's why I'm day. late, because I had a fruit assembly line. <laughs> okay, we're going to get to that. And there are all these, yeah. We're going to get to that. Okay. Let's, let's, let's go to like the middle of your history before we go to the, okay. the fruit yes. phase of okay, your life. Cool. When did you move to California and why did you make that decision? Uh, yeah, I moved three years ago, a little over three years ago. 
I was running out of, I was running everything out of, I was in this weird live workspace above a bar in the East Village, a cool space. I lived with a neon sign maker and we had a wood shop in our kitchen and uh, it was great, but I ran out of space for uh, like my floor was just covered in boxes with helmets. I had clients come over, which some of them were entertained by my place, but it was not that professional. So I was like looking for a new place to to move to in New York. I didn't imagine living in California. And my friends in San Francisco said like, Hey, we're like actually going to be leaving our apartment for three months. If you want to like come here for the winter, you can stay with us. You can like stay on, stay in our place. It's not like, Oh, what if I just like lived in San Francisco for three months and then, and then I moved up and I never left. (laughs) Welcome to the club. Yeah. (laughs) Every single year. I think I've got two years left. I've been saying that for eight years. Yeah. And I was in New York for 10 years i think it's difficult you can get kind of locked into living in a city when you're not aware that you might enjoy a different place so i think it's good to force yourself to just live somewhere else because you might like end up moving (laughs) agreed i haven't pulled the plug yet but one day yeah okay so you moved from new york you're living here with your friends did you start a new business once you moved here yes many of them within a few months of moving here actually like i mean this was just like uh one week business was like Pokemon go craze. And I created a battery that looks like a Pokeball, which went viral on the internet. And I sold lots of them and hired 25 people. And we had an assembly line and made them for like three weeks. And that was like, I mean, then I, I only did this for a short amount of time, but I had my helmet business. I brought my tricycle. I brought one. I had three tricycles in New York and just brought one over. I also was doing my my cloud storage units that were like these clouds you can store things in. I started doing custom avocados when I moved here because the avocados were, I could get better deals on avocados in San Francisco and more people are interested in avocados here. I also did a lot of my companies are sort of Bay area jokes too. Like I started selling sweaters for drones and walk me through the idea behind sweaters for drones. Yeah. Uh, I, made a sweater for my drone just like one would have a dog sweater and uh I you knitted a sweater inter- uh no it's it seems like i knit the sweater i wanted to spend as very little time as possible on this so i found some knit socks and cut up the socks and re-sewed them together and attached them to your drone and yeah i mean i made like a it buttoned up and um i attached it to a drone uh that was broken because I thought of the idea and I didn't even have a drone, but just put a message out into the world. Hey, can I borrow someone's drone? And someone gave me their like sort of broken drone. <laughs> but this went viral on the internet and I then drone companies started sending me their drones for our sweaters. Then I had a pile of drones with sweaters and I, and I sold, yeah, I get inquiries about this a lot. I kind of don't sell them anymore because I don't, <laughs> I don't think it's something anyone needs. <laughs> Like I can't justify, I can't justify spending time on drone sweaters. There is actually a use case for it. If I wanted to, you know, if I wanted to work with companies to, to figure out like sleek ways to uh, conserve drone battery life when it's cold weather outside, cause batteries drain faster. There could be like this stylish solution with like a heated drone sweater, but I haven't really, I don't care that much about drones. <laughs> 
So a lot of people are trying to start companies and mm-hmm. come up with ideas, and they're very serious about this. Mm. You're starting companies as basically jokes sometimes. I mean, it's yeah, it's fun for me. Like I, I love launching ideas and setting up landing pages. Like this is a hobby is to like set up landing pages for for stuff. Um, so. I launched this as a joke and then people thought it was serious and then I thought no one would want to buy it, but people do people. And this has happened for a few products where I think, Oh, everyone will hate this and they'll understand that I'm making fun of the Bay area, but yet they want the thing. Okay. This is my VC trading cards, which I sort of kept anonymous, but VC trading cards. Yeah. VC trading cards, sweater, sweaters for drones. Why do people want these things? And like, I guess what I'm getting at is, is how do you make something go viral? Mm. Right? What is what is the the sort of common thread between what makes something blow up? Is it because they're jokes, or is there something else that you're doing to really get people interested in the things that you're building? Yeah, I mean, I think a percentage of the stuff that is a joke gets media attention, and people want to be part of that joke, and they want to be part of the story that they are the person buying that thing. That like this joke speaks to them; they are the recipient of the joke, and they want it too. But often it's totally unexpected. Like I put something online, like the VC trading cards actually were super popular in Japan because there's both trading card culture is so strong there. And and there's also a sort of obsession with Silicon Valley there. And so I sold a lot to people in Japan, but I didn't like realize that. But I don't know why people impulse purchase things. I don't understand it either. Like I'm not, I don't really buy things on the internet when I find something funny. I I think like it's very easy to be on Twitter and you find something at 1am and you just, uh, I want that shipped to me in three days. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> I see funny things on the internet. I, I just laugh yeah. and then click the next thing. Yeah. I don't buy either. I saw a, um, there's a community online. I think it's called the Cloud Appreciation Society. Hmm. And it's a community of people who appreciate clouds. Oh, I'd love to, to learn more. Yeah. <laughs> so would I. Um, <laughs> I think they charge like 25 or 50 bucks for membership and they've got like 30,000 members. What, is that in, what does the membership include? Like, like a in, plaque. Like a, proves oh, you appreciate clouds. you've got a physical thing. I yeah, people really actual. love being part of special clubs. I think that's it, especially with, I think like a lot of brands have sort of this whole lifestyle. Like if you buy our shirt, you are now like a person that can like, is part of our whole Instagram lifestyle. We got a whole box of any <laughs> hacker shirts right here. If you want oh, one, cool. you can be yeah, part of the crew. Danielle. <laughs> so this is like, this is interesting because it's, it's maybe it's an underlooked marketing tactic, at least in like the circles that I travel mm. in where like being novel and funny and having personality and just. I don't know, just doing something different than everybody else is doing can get you media attention beyond just building something that's super useful. That's the thing, right? Like, I mean, I I like building useful things and can justify my jokes as useful. Like the swag, like swag, swag produce, putting logos on oranges and avocados is like, seems really silly, but it's actually like kind of useful because there's a lot of waste when you get your fidget spinners and your stress balls and it's actually like solving a problem of like not wasting as much plastic if you want to like promote something and it also solves this problem of like oh nobody's taking pictures of the water bottle they get but they'll take a picture of an orange because it's novel so there's like some utility in it i'd rather 
only make useful things. I just think of a lot of dumb jokes. <laughs> and they are like, I mean, it's important for any, if you have like a useful product, it's so hard to get press about it. Journalists love weird, controversial, like funny stories. And so it's a challenge if you do have a useful thing, like how do you spin a, how do you spin a weird surrealist angle on it so that you get some sort of press? There's a, there's a new task manager that's making people 5% more productive. Like no oh, one wants yeah. to write a story on that. Yeah. A to-do list. Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about, let's talk about your, your branded produce. Okay, sure. Branded fruit is the name of your company. What is yeah. this exactly? Who's buying it? How did you come up with the idea? Yeah, branded fruit. Um, I started as the company customavocados.com. And I did this before I even had a website. My friend was having a barbecue and her company had recently been acquired. And I thought it'd be sort of funny if I brought swag from the new company name to the barbecue as though their life was like now owned by their new company. Like your life has been acquired. Your barbecue has been acquired. <laughs> so I brought these avocados. I made four avocados and just like left them on the table. And I noticed like all these people were taking pictures of them and they were just looking at them and they were fascinated. Like, how did you do it? And they were putting them on Instagram. Like, Oh, actually this is like great marketing. Like this company who didn't even buy these is now getting like mentions on Twitter and so I thought, okay, well, I think I could probably turn this into a company and sell these. I set up and it took a, it took some time to actually, like, I think I, this was in New York. I moved to San Francisco. I set it up. I actually launched the idea for the Stupid Ideas Hackathon, which is a great conference that happens once a year where your goal is to build something that is useless, which is a challenge. And I think avocados don't even, they're not useless, but I launched it there. And I, people tweeted about it. And so companies actually saw this and I actually got an order with Salesforce. They wanted 500 avocados. So an inbound request out of the blue Salesforce. Yeah. Make us five. They're like, avocados. Oh, this would be great for our Cinco de Mayo party for our team. And they wanted 500. And then other companies wanted smaller amounts and that was fine. Some people like wanted them just as inside jokes. I did like a wedding proposal on, or marriage proposal on a series of avocados that this person left throughout their apartment and I did this for like a year. I mean, just like, I don't know, a few times a month. By yourself? Yeah. How long does it take one person to carve 500 Well, it's not avocados? carved. It's applied to the surface. You okay. can't. Yeah. I mean, it's constantly getting faster because I'm using new technology. <laughs> it was like I was doing a very slow process. Going to the store and finding the perfect avocado that is the perfect level of un unripe ripeness is like that takes time but then i i found farms and i had like an avocado supplier and i ended up expanding this i did avocados for like two years and i thought because in my spare time i make landing pages and buy domain names i it's like what about all fruit why not like why not carrots why not peppers why not pineapples and i just bought the domain name brandedfruit.com because it was available and it's sort of like fake acquired custom avocados and <laughs> the new an direction of the, I think I did on Facebook, but it was sort of a joke. And the new direction of the company was like all produce, like brands on everything. It's sort of like a surrealist dystopian way. Just like printed a bunch of brands. Like I put Airbnb on like a piece of broccoli and I made all these samples and put them on my site. And it ended up getting press in fast company, uh, do I mean this was my own fault? I did t I did tip it. I did tip it to them. But um, 
uh, it got press and it made its way into like marketing or like promotional items, trade publications as this is the new, like this is the newest swag. And I talked to people who had been in the industry for 20 years and they're like, I've never seen logos on fruit before. And it's, to me, it's such like a, an obvious idea. Like, I guess like, yeah, it is. Yeah. This hasn't existed in like 20 years of weird promotional items. Um, and so companies, I mean, yeah, pretty large companies are reaching out to me and they want a thousand oranges to give out for an event or 5,000 oranges or avocados or clementines, pineapples. I don't do bananas anymore, but at one point I did. <laughs> so when you, when you tip off Fast Company, you get some press. You're expecting there to be inbound interest. Do you have a, a plan at that point for exactly what your business is going to look like? Uh, no, this, okay. I didn't, I wasn't a direct tip to Fast Company. Basically, there was an article about how wasteful the swag industry was. And I just emailed the journalist who wrote about it that this is why all swag should be avocados or something silly. But like, I told her I was doing this like waste free alternative to swag and she wanted to hop on the phone and learn more. And we had a long conversation about manufacturing. And the wastefulness of swag, like I've manufactured things in China before. So I know like if the logo is off center, they throw out the whole product and it's like crazy how much stuff is wasted and how no one even cares about the thing. Like, it's just incredible that so much time, so many labor hours are going into things that no one wants. But we had this long conversation and then she ended up writing an article about it, but I didn't know. I didn't know that it was going to be featured in Fast Company. So one day at 5.30 a.m., my phone starts ringing. And someone who wants branded fruit, I'm like, oh, that's interesting. And then like two minutes later, my phone rings again. And I look, check my, and I open up my email and I just have like inbound. I have like tons of requests. I mean, within the first three days, I had like 150 requests for fruit. And this is just you by yourself at this point. I was, yes. Well, I was home and then my co-founder for my voice chat app was on the couch at the time and he observed this whole thing happen. And then the two of us sorted through all my emails and set up an air table and like organized everything. And I, I didn't even have like my website. There was no way to purchase it. It was just a form. And I just, I switched everything to Shopify. Within a day, I switched everything to Shopify and changed my photography and like set up a nicer form and had a whole like way of tagging inbound orders and like set this whole thing up in a day, which I should have done in advance, but I didn't know. Well, it's yeah. crazy. You're actually getting paying customers or people who want to pay you for what you're yes. building. You've, you've built Absolutely nothing besides a landing page. Well, no, I mean, I had, I had done in some fruit, right? right? Not much, though. I mean, I had done probably under 1,500 pieces of fruit in my lifetime, which I guess is, seems low. But yeah, like the whole branded fruit business was pretty new and no one had ever purchased something from that domain name. They had purchased stuff from uh, custom avocados. But yeah, and I didn't spend like, I mean, I set up the whole website in just an afternoon bought a bunch of fruit, put logos on it and used like some of my earlier client work. That's what's and, amazing to me. Cause I know so yeah. many people who will work on something for like a year and not get a single paying customer. Well, right. Then that's why you should test ideas without spending any time and money on them. Like to see, like build, make your thing better as people are paying. I sort of freaked out when I first started getting so many orders. I was like, there's no way I could make this much fruit. Like I don't have a van. I don't have I, where do I get my fruit wholesale? I had to figure this all out. And I was thinking like, oh, maybe I should have an investor. 
And then I was like, oh, wait, I could just like charge people and then figure it out incrementally and do like what I can. And I guess if my first like five orders are not perfect, that's okay. At what point did you start hiring people and scaling up your operation? Uh, Within three days, I hired a full-time assistant because my... My inbox was just crazy and I and I was also working on my other company and so I didn't want to spend 100% of my time on fruit. I also couldn't brand all the fruit alone and yeah, a friend of mine really wanted to work on branded fruit. She was excited about the business. So I was like, "Oh yeah, let's try it out. Like, yeah, come over and we'll sort of work on random stuff together and we'll see." And she yeah, she's been like my full-time assistant for like I guess over three months. Yeah. And now you've got, what? how many people did you say you had working there's on fruit nine, today? There's nine people working at the fruit factory today. Okay. Yeah. So, it's yeah. rolling. I mean, some days it's one person. Some days it's three. It depends on the order because we have to ship out same day. So Describe to listeners this process of, of having a fruit factory. A fruit what factory does that even mean? In a studio. Oh, having a fruit factory. I mean, it's an, assemb- it's an assembly line. I call it the fruit force. But it's like <laughs> fruit forest or fruit factory. Uh, it's an assembly line. I mean, it is imagine 2000 oranges on a table and everyone's doing a part and the oranges are coming off the table into boxes. And there's someone like preparing all the boxes so that they have the right, they're packaged in the right way so they don't bruise in the mail. And like there's someone putting the perishable stickers. Everyone, it's like you divide everything into a micro task. I've done factories before and like I learn each time like how to set up a system and and then try to make it fun. Like I, I'm actually really interested in the social aspect of factories, like what people are coming in today and what is their dynamic like, and do these people distract each other? Like what is the conversation going to be about? And so I try to, I try to like curate and make socially engineering. I guess I mean, there's only, I mean, you can't, really like things happen organically i also like don't know some people join the factory and i haven't met them before and but yeah and people like i actually have i actually have a wait list to work on my factory i was gonna ask people say they're a lot of fun i know yeah well that's like my yeah i mean i kind of want to have a separate ticketed factory for all the people that are on the wait list and just start selling tickets to fact to work on an assembly line as like a weird as a theater piece joke but like yeah, I mean, I basically have an email list and then just will, if I need help for something, we'll just blast everyone and see who's available. And I mean, it's a mix of who's available that day because I only do it last minute. I don't, I can't plan in advance for, for stuff like fruit. Yeah, you got a perishable product. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I want to talk about <laughs> your last company, the one you're most excited yeah. about, Dial Up. Um, yeah. Before that, I want to give listeners a snapshot of how well branded fruit is doing because you oh, said you'd be right. okay sharing some revenue numbers about I, that. Yeah. Uh, so, so uh, the fast company article launched mid December. Then uh, took me like a week to set everything up to charge people. So since since January first, I have sold fifty nine thousand dollars in fruit, but that includes shipping and stuff. Right. That's not. That's not but profit, that's but I've, but I've transacted $59,000 through my Shopify in, in just fruit alone in like bananas and oranges and avocados, That's a lot, of fruit. which is crazy. It's a lot of fruit, but no longer bananas. No, bananas don't ship. Well, they, I Bush. talked to the, I talked to the director of the, or the international banana association through my app. Like we got connected in a, in a way and, um, it's shipping bananas is like very difficult 
I have ideas for like how to improve banana shipping, but it's just easier to say no. Say no. Just say <laughs> yeah. no to that idea. I mean, yeah, it's like the temperature changes and they're just bruised easily. And yeah. Let's talk about your app that connected you to this banana expert. <laughs> yeah. Um, what is dial up? Okay. Dial up is a voice chat app that calls your phone at specific intervals. Like let's say Tuesday at 7 PM, your phone rings and it connects you with a random person in a specific line that you've signed up to. So like if you and 10 friends want to always stay stay connected with each other through phone calls, it just calls you and connects you. And this could be um, a group of people with similar interests. Like there's a, we have a line for farming. Uh, And by line, I mean like a channel. Uh, But yeah, there's like a line for farming. And so people that are interested in like ag tech will like on Sundays at 4 p.m., like their phones will ring and they'll get connected and they'll be matched with the random person and they'll have a one-on-one and you can do this with a, with just one person. So you'd be like matched with, you'd always match with them or you can do it with like 300 people for your conference or like a thousand people and continue like having these meaningful conversations like pretty frequently. Is this another idea that came out of you solving one of your own problems? Or? Totally. It's both like my problems and Max, my co-founder's problems. So years ago, Max uh, created this this art project called Call in the Night that was a library of people discussing their dreams. And it would call people in the middle of the night between 2 a.m. and 5 a.m., like at random days. And uh, they'd pick up, they'd be connected to a stranger. They'd discuss their dreams. That would be recorded. And so there's a library and 5,000 people were on this. There's like a library of people talking about their dreams. 5,000 people voluntarily signed up to be called between 2 and 5 a.m. All over the world. But it wasn't just about dreams. I mean, people would like talk about all these different things. And he showed me the archives. I was very interested in this. I've always been interested in like voice conversations, kind of like from being a painter. Like I actually can't at like when my when my day job was painting i actually like couldn't really spend much time on the internet so i'd listen to lots of podcasts and i'd have people call me as a way to communicate with me because i couldn't like check twitter so i also have been making audio recordings for many years but um uh so i learned about this and like kind of around the same time i was getting a lot of emails from like entrepreneurs that wanted advice and i thought that okay it's kind of like someone wants to talk to me for advice, but they kind of just want to verbalize what's on their mind. And this is like this helpful therapy sort of thing. And what I noticed also like with Calm and Night that like it's very therapeutic and people have all these realizations when they're just like talking to someone over the phone. And I thought, okay, well, what if I connected all the people that are reaching out to me with each other so that like an entrepreneur could talk to another entrepreneur? And uh, Max and I, we're discussing this and thought like, okay, well, let's try it just with us and a small group of friends. And so we were all self-employed. We were all calling each other. Then it sort of seemed like we were each other's bosses and we created an app called your boss. And it was like role play as a boss for a stranger. And if you're self-employed freelance remote, we worked on this for a few months, launched it in the app store. A few hundred people joined all over the world it was interesting, like, there were a lot of people on it that were not self-employed or <laughs> freelance. There were a significant amount of people that were self-employed and working on all these interesting projects, like a shoemaker in England and, like, a set designer in Mumbai and all these people working on their thing. But there were a lot of people that just had, like, 
they had a full-time job. They were just like really interested in talk and like having a, having a conversation with someone. And then we had all these, these people say like, I want this, but I want to choose who I talk to. Like, I really liked the person I just met on the phone. How do I get reconnected? So then we decided to just be a voice chat app, not just for, not just for people pretending to be others boss, but for like any sort of interest or group of people you want to stay in touch with. And like kind of, it's relevant now because I have so many friends that are leaving Facebook and Twitter. And I'm just like, oh, just join my dial-up line and we can stay in touch because I, otherwise I'll have no awareness of what's going on. You'll just kind of like, if I don't plan to like get lunch with you, I will never, I will never know what's going on in your life. And it's really sad that I'd be dependent on Facebook or Twitter to like have an, have an awareness of another person. So I'm like, oh, join my dial-up line and like I, I will get connected to you over the phone at a specific interval. So like you say, Thursday at 5 p.m., sure. connect me to this specific person. And then yeah. he calls them. Yeah. I mean, or what I do with my dial-up line is I have, it calls a random person. Right. For, so I'm, get, I get connected to a random friend. Oh, okay. Yeah. So you don't even know who it's going to be. And no. they don't even know if a call is going to come. Yeah. They don't know that if they're going to get called or not. But like it could be, we could, I could set up a one-on-one with someone and say that, yes, every, every, once a month on a Thursday at 4 p.m., our phones will ring and we will have a conversation. Yeah. And there's also like this prompt at the beginning of the conversation that I like, I make my prompts weird, but like there's prompts like if you want to ask a specific question, like, what are you up to right now? Or like, go look at the moon and tell me what's on your mind. I don't know. <laughs> is that like you reading these prompts to people? Or is there a voice? Yeah. Um, I've recorded for all of the li- all the lines we have that are like dial-ups lines. Cause when you join the app, there's like 12 different lines you could join. It's me and Max that recorded all the intros with different music. <laughs> so it's like 30 second clips. And it's like for the, for the boss line, it's like this 80s synth music and I'm like, when's your next deadline? And uh, then people talk to each other and a- try to answer that question. There's a line where you just like talk about weather and nature and I ask questions about insects or it's like it's random stuff. But it's ins- like having a very detailed question inspires a uh, whole conversation. So out of all the things we've talked about, this is the first of all, how, how are we doing on time? Oh, I'm good. I'm just I'm getting uh one of the calls was just triggered from oh, okay. the app is calling me right now. It's the immersive. Des- I signed up the immersive des- design summit. Okay. And so every Thursday at five fifteen PM, uh, the phone rings and I can see, so yeah, I see the, the call coming in. Summit is calling. Oh, I should have picked it up actually. That'd be funny if yeah, I was like recording a podcast. So what happens if you don't yeah. pick it up? It's, it's, it's they fun. just, they get connected to somebody else. Yes. They get connected to someone else. So if I don't pick up, it's like, you'll still get a match. Yeah. So out of all the things we've talked about, this is the only business we've covered so far. That's 100% pure app. Everything else has had some sort of physical e-commerce, physical good component to it. And your experience, what's, what are some of the differences? How is this different than building a physical product? Is it harder? Is it easier? Oh, I mean, it's so, it's so nice. Like, okay. Dealing with shipping physical things is so like so limiting as to like how many people you could reach. And like also you're dealing with the forces of lost packages. And like there's just so many issues with with like physical goods. And this idea I'm very excited about, but it like works for thousands of people. Like if we build it well, like thousands of people can use it and more. And it's also like a f- I mean, it's this is such a different project because this is like this is about 
human relationships and connections and stuff versus like decorative whimsical things, which is most of the other stuff I've done. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's uh, totally different. Like I'm doing, I'm doing UX design for this and it's like totally different. I've had to like design things a very different way. Cause it's like, Oh, how am I designing like people creating their username versus like, how am I designing like a tapestry contraption thing for someone's wall is very different. I'm really excited about this idea. It's kind of awesome that if we're building this technology that all these people can use it. And it's like one project versus like make something, ship it out and it's gone. Remake the thing, ship it out. It's gone. Yeah. Yeah. There's kind of a natural ending point. If you're doing physical goods where you've made all the things you're going to make and now you have to order more, you can just not order more. Yeah. Whereas with your digital app. Well, this is, it's an evolving. Yeah. The app is like this, this like giant evolving thing. It's It's never done. It never, it will never die. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's no end, right? I mean, there's constant, the more, the more users you have, the more feature requests there will be, the more possible, the, 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 when your technology works, the more possible directions you can go in. And it's sort of like, yeah, it's this like massive sculpture, not a sculpture. Yeah, it is. It is sort of like a sculpture. (laughs) Well, you're talking about these different directions you can go in and you're talking about, okay, well, you've got your boss which is for well, entrepreneurs. That's not, it's got, now a line, yeah. Right, you've got yeah. lines, you've got, um, basically you can create a line for anything. Yeah. Uh, you've got business users, you've got consumers. It's true. How yeah. do you make money from this? How do you, yeah. like, where do you go as a business? Right, I mean, we don't, so uh, if it's, if your line's under 20, this is like our basic pricing structure, if your line is under 20 people, it's free, and if it's over 20 people, you're going to pay like $10 a month. And if it's over 100 people in your conference, then it would be a different price. So this way, like, we're not going to charge you if you want to connect to your family in like a monthly call, like that seems... But that's something that people are not used to paying for. And also, like, I want I want to, like, facilitate these conversations. But if it's, like, uh, some meetup group that has a budget and, like, has over 20 people in it, then that will be a monthly payment. Sounds like you've kind of naturally settled on being B2B, charging businesses and letting consumers charging. Uh, no, I mean, I think, like, I think that some people would want to pay $10 a month for a large group, right? It's not necessarily a business. I think there's also all these features that we'll build later on. I mean, this is just the pricing structure we're, we're doing for the next few months while while we build out the lines feature. But like, I think that there could be all these other features, like more frequent calls and all these sort of like micro payments that people could do. Yeah. Have you found that it's any more difficult to grow and get press for a digital app, which which there are many millions compared oh. to like a very unique, you know, branded fruit product or uh, sweater drones? No, I'm not worried about this at all because I have like a bunch of tricks. <laughs> okay. I mean, I have like, I, I think, I mean, so if you're launching an app, like focus on, and I won't reveal what my stunts are, but like I have good stories about this app uh, that I'll release in the next few months. But focus on one very small detail detail of the technology you're creating. That's a good, that's a really good story. You have a whole repertoire of tricks. <laughs> you got to give us at least like half of a trick. A half trick like, related to this? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Give me, give me like okay. a, a tidbit well, of a trick. Here's how I've, I've had a lot of success telling people about my app by pulling out a floppy disk, which unfortunately I didn't bring. But um, I have like tons of floppy disks that like give people the link to sign up for the app and explain what it is. But it looks like a retro disk. I actually like for the Immersive Design Summit, I left 
like a few hundred floppy disks lying around the whole conference that all looked like retro video games and stuff. And some just looked like weird save like save files. I made a whole spectrum of floppy disks. Wow. People were like, what is this? And then they went to the website. Well, I'm planning on doing like a mass mailing of floppy disks, kind of like AOL. I don't know anyone else who's advertising <laughs> their app by mailing people stuff. Oh, yeah. People love uh, artifacts and things. I think people enjoy, and maybe I'm biased because I enjoy this, but I think people enjoy game elements to to technology, right? To signing up for something. Like, it should be fun and exciting as opposed to, like, I would never want to, like, purchase a Facebook ad to tell people about, like, connect with your friends. And then we're, like, spending, like, $1.13 per click i would never want to like give facebook money to get people to sign up for our app but like if i am giving someone this like interesting story like i got a mysterious floppy disk in the mail and then it led me to this site where like i wasn't sure if it was real or not and then i read it and i was like oh actually i do want this i think like that's like that's a good way to get people to sign up like also like it's i think it's super important to not take uh, I, I, I'm very worried, like, now that I have this app, that I'll sound like a startup when I'm like, sign up for my app. Like, I tell friends, I, like, run into an old friend. I'm like, are you on my are you on my app yet? <laughs> and I don't like this about myself. So I also, I, I don't want to, like, take this idea too seriously, even though I do. I don't want to come across as though I take it too seriously. So I think if, it, if it's playful in the way that I'm sharing it is... Um, is both like revealing what the product is, but is also playful and like a game and also doesn't seem too much like a startup trying to disrupt how people communicate. Like that's a good way to market something. You're trying your hardest to not be like every other person in San Francisco. Yeah. Our landing page is really weird. You can see it. We have dialup.com and it looks like a retro website. I'm going for like my, like I think Craigslist is beautifully designed and I could, I can make a landing page that has like the flat humans and like the three bullet points with icons and test. I mean, there's like a whole formula for like being a startup, but like this isn't that interesting to me because I think so much of it is noise because there's just way too many startups that do the same aesthetic. And a lot of these are like work because it's like, oh, you trust this format, but I'd rather people think like, oh, I don't know if this is like an art project or, uh, or a company but it's very much a company, but like, I think I don't want to, I don't want to come across as like, we're a, we're an app. <laughs> I think you, you have this drive almost to just like not fit in any particular box to not, to <laughs> not be part of a group, which is really cool because it makes you so different. And like that novelty mm-hmm. makes you way more interesting to the press, to users, to customers. Yeah. And it's, it's hard to do because I think when you're starting a company, there's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of like, should I make this decision? Should I go that direction? Yeah. And you don't know. And I think part of being a human is when you're uncertain, you just ask other people or you copy other oh, people totally. and you feel good about that. Yeah. It's cool. This app, like I, when it was your boss, I connected to users all the time. So I had a phone conversation with someone in Norway and like, I could ask anyone I was connected to like, Hey, would you want this phone feature for anything else in your life? And like got tons of feedback and um because i'm able to like talk to people using the app it's like const there's a constant like there's a constant connection to the end user for me i think it's easy for a lot of companies to sort of build things in a vacuum and they have this idea like here's the market like i know about the market and then they have this hypothesis and they're like pretty sure it'll work 
but they're not even talking to the person or like have an understanding, uh, like a personal understanding of who the, who the end user is. So I think like, I think that would also be demotivating for me if I didn't, if I didn't think like I was building anything that was valuable for anyone and then continued to stick with my hypothesis because I didn't want to be wrong. Like I would not enjoy that. For Max and I, we, we want to, we want to design like the best way for people to have a, have like a meaningful conversation in the year 2019 uh, with the thing that they have on them, which is their phone. So I think that's such a great hack to building valuable products, being able to talk to people kind of yeah. using your product as a natural extension of building it. You kind of have to, to use it and talk to people. Totally, yeah. Like the other half of any hackers is an online community and it's the same thing. Like whether or not I want to talk to people, I have to every day. Like they will let me know what they need to see in the product itself, even if I don't ask. Yeah. And so it's, it's sort of an unfair advantage. Yeah, totally. We talked about focus a little bit earlier on and how hard it is to focus. I was actually on a call with a couple <laughs> friends and one of them, she was asking, like, how do I focus? You know, I feel like I jump from feature to feature, idea to idea. Yeah. And the other two of us on the call were like, we do the exact same thing. We have no idea. It's difficult. I mean, I kind of always feel, I always feel like I'm not productive and focused constantly. I mean, that's helpful to feel that way because if I felt too comfortable, then I would like not make new things. But um, yeah, I think like, I don't know. It's important to have a percentage of the time work on things at whim. And then another percentage of the time, like do really boring stuff repetitively. Like, I mean, just force yourself to, I, I think it is important to allow yourself to explore distractions. And I think like another thing that is important to do without losing focus is to like, think about what your mission is and then align your decisions with the mission for a lot of my other companies I had, I mean, for my helmet company, like I had this grand vision to alter graphics on all helmets. And I ended up manufacturing my own molds and made all these steps towards doing like mass production of customized unique designs. But I needed to spend more time on that. But what I was doing was I was just responding to the clients that were ready to pay me. They're like, I need five helmets by Tuesday. Will you do it? I'm like, yes, because that is my job. I should be working on this company and like fulfilling orders when it would be in my best interest to ignore the immediate pile of cash and like work on the longer term vision, even though I wasn't getting paid. I think it's really difficult to it's, I mean, it's easy to be swayed to be swayed for what you're working on by immediate positive outcomes as opposed to like what your large vision is and it'd be better for you to reject to reject a lot of things that bring you money or bring you some value if they don't align with like what you want the larger thing to be like two years from that point what would you say is your mission for yourself as an entrepreneur you talked earlier about how you really like making new ideas Mm -hmm. uh is that what you want to do with for the rest of your life do you want to work on (laughs) dial up and turn it into something huge Um, I do, I, I do want to work on dial up because the dial up itself feels infinite to me. Like if it was just a single, I get, I, if it was just a single product, like if we were a simple, like SaaS tool for scheduling phone calls, I would not want to work on that for, for like many years. This feels infinite because like, just based on all the, all the people that are joining and, and, uh, requesting 
new lines and they're things I haven't thought of before. And also like the technology we have to connect people through phone calls. Like it feels like there's many companies within the company. So I'm excited about it. Like, I look for these like fractal infinite ideas that I want to work on. So I think this, I, I definitely want to run this for the next few years. I think like for like a, my li- like a lifetime vision of mine, I don't doubt that I won't have more just based on, based on what I know about myself from the last 30 years. I will probably continuously think of stuff. I think a challenge I face is that I have to like put things on the shelf, not act upon things immediately, especially as like multiple companies of mine are scaling and require my attention. I can't just at whim on a Sunday create a new landing page because it could like people might want the thing from me and then might might actually want I know and it's like like I've learned my lesson enough times that like oh I could launch something and people might want to buy it even though the first few times it seems like luck and it seems magical it's like okay I actually probably shouldn't put myself in a position where I have to fulfill a bunch of orders for my dumb joke um so I'm like I have to be more strict with myself on launching ideas or figure out how to hire people and well, there are 30, 40,000 people listening to this thing who themselves would love to have the magical ability of creating <laughs> ideas and having people actually want them. So what's your advice after years of building business after business for people who want to learn to do what you do? Yeah, I think like it's, hmm, I think it's super important to launch things when you don't think, when you're kind of nervous about it and you don't think it's polished and Maybe only a few people told you it was a good idea, but like it's really important to just as simple as you can make it, launch the thing and see whether or not you should kill it or continue to do it. Because there's a few projects of mine that I feel like I wasted time on and um, and that's valuable time that you could be spending on lots of other things. But there's also things that if I had waited to launch it, it would never have any reach. It would never have done anything. And I, you know, just tried to launch things as, as quick as possible. Also, like you don't need, you don't necessarily need money and resources to do something, even if it's a huge idea, like what version of the thing, how can you reduce that thing to a very simple version? Even if it's just collecting someone's email address, like to actually, know whether or not your idea is worth pursuing and then how can you incrementally take steps to like make that thing real and figure out if it's even worth it it's great advice channel your inner scrappy set prop yes. designer to get an early He's version scrap- out yeah there. pretend that also like the the set designer i was working for she before she became a set designer she worked at a ford factory and so <laughs> The combination of like working for a set designer whose background is assembly line, like it's like we so you'd like come back with a pile of trash to the studio and then we had to like form an assembly line and turn the trash into flowers. And like so it's like a good philosophy to like pretend you're on an assembly line to like, actually make yourself do the work. Like even when you're making a landing page and you're like, oh, I have to like make sure there's a way to email me on every page. And it's like a lot of the work I do is pretty it's kind of boring when I'm actually like sitting down and doing it, but it's important to like do boring work, pretend you're on an assembly line and also use very limited resources. <laughs> well, I'm going to have to get you on like an indie hackers AMA or an office hours or something. Cause I would love to see actual people from the indie hackers community try to interact with you and hear your oh. advice. <laughs> um, but Daniel, yeah. thank you so much for coming on the oh, show. Oh yeah. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This was fun. Yeah. It's been a joy having you over. 
Where can listeners go to find out more about you and the 23 things that you're working on? Uh, you can go to daniellebaskin.com, which is just my name. Or you can go to you can go to dialup.com and uh, maybe I'll create a maybe I'll create a line for the people listening to this podcast. Andy Hacks so we can all line. we can all uh, connect with each other. Oh god, yeah. I'm gonna get so many random phone calls. I can't wait. Yeah. <laughs> all right, thank you so much, Danielle. Thank you. If you enjoyed listening to this conversation and you want a really easy way to support the podcast, why don't you head over to iTunes and leave us a quick rating or even a review? If you're looking for an easy way to get there, just go to ndhackers.com slash review and that should open up iTunes on your computer. I read pretty much all the reviews that you guys leave over there and it really helps other people to discover the show so your support is very much appreciated. In addition, if you are running your own internet business or if that's something you hope to do someday, you should join me and a whole bunch of other founders on the ndhackers.com website. It's a great place to get feedback on pretty much any problem or question that you might have while running your business. If you listen to the show, you know that I am a huge proponent of getting help from other founders rather than trying to build your business all by yourself. So you'll see me on the forum for sure, as well as more than a handful of some of the guests that I've had on the podcast. If you're looking for inspiration, we've also got a huge directory full of hundreds of products built by other indie hackers, every one of which includes revenue numbers and some of the behind the scenes strategies for how they grew their products from nothing. As always, thanks so much for listening and I'll see you next time.